You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. And of course, thanks for being here uh, again. I'm uh, really excited that we are looking to meet together in person uh, at the beginning of March. And uh, as case numbers of uh, COVID continue to fall and uh, barring anything else unusual happening, we're, we're really looking forward to getting a chance to meet back together in person. So, uh, thanks for being here, and I'm looking forward to seeing you uh, for more than one Sunday as we go back in person this time. Uh, isn't we made it? We made it one Sunday last time, right? No, we had. Oh no, no, that's true. That's yeah. true. It was. It was a little more than that. Well, yeah, the entire uh, month of December for Advent. For Advent, we and made it. Count, we made it count for Advent. Very true. Okay. Bob, okay. Bob yeah, we welcome we welcome baby Jesus in the world in person, Bob. I know that's beautiful. I was sadly I missed welcoming baby Jesus that day, and I got COVID as a result. So I was punished by the yes, Lord for missing yes. church. The Lord shall smite <laughs> the Lord shall smite thee for for thy COVID sin. Uh, what am I saying? Just go ahead, Bob. Oh man, if you're tuning in for the first time on the podcast, please keep listening because that is not representative of Central Avenue. Uh, it is, uh, I suppose, of our uh, humor and, um, yeah, uh, anyways, <laughs> moving right along. Uh, I'm really excited this week. Aaron's uh, doing a series right now on a church history, um, and we're also this month uh, celebrating Black History Month. And so this month, uh, our liturgy and the things that are happening around service are all going to be centered on uh, Black voices and on um, uh, especially recognizing um, the uh, difficulties in reconciling American history with Black history um, and what it means to hold those together. Um, you know, of course, this is something that's been important for this community. Um, uh, outside of just one month a year. But, you know, there is certainly a reason that this is something that we commemorate every year. And it reminds me that um, we have done a pretty terrible job um, throughout our histories of integration. Um, but as our friend Andre Henry says, it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, and that's why we meet, that's why we do this thing that we do, so that we can be voices, uh, advocates, um, so that we can listen and learn, um, so that we can, in the very small ways, make measurable and large impacts um, in our communities and, and hopefully transform this world. Um, we have come a long way and we have so far yet to go. So as we open this morning, I wanted to share a prayer for Black History Month. Um, it is written by an unknown author, um, but has been something that has been um, moved around and shared for many, many years. Um, but I, I 
love this piece, looking through some liturgies. And uh, actually today, both of the things we're gonna be doing, I haven't altered or changed at all, which I often do. Um, but uh, I'll let this stand here uh, on its own. Let this be our prayer this morning. Spirit of abundance, God of grace, mother of hope, we pause now to remember those stories that are all around us, but so often passed over. Those stories that when told are shared because of what someone is, not who they are. This month in our nation's character is Black History Month. Help us to realize that Black history is all our histories. May the day come when these stories are so wildly taught that no month need be separately divided. We know this day will not come until we as a people make different choices. We pray now for those new choices. May we come to see a day where the prison system becomes redemptive, not punitive. A day where the legal system learns to focus more squarely on the facts and not the colors of our skin. A day where our schools are as well-funded as the needs demand. May our role models be allowed to excel when they thrive and not be taken down for their rich heritage. We know this will require a shift in power and this can be scary for some. Give those full of fear hope. May we come to know grace so that our hearts will not be hardened to the pain around us. There are so many beautiful stories needing to be told and we need to get the chance to hear them. Widen our vision so that the history that is shared this month and every month come to be known as our history too. We are most human when we see the humanity in others. Amen. I wanted to share a poem this morning um, that was uh, written by Langston Hughes. Um, uh, we have shared several things from um, Langston Hughes here uh, in this service, and he's such an interesting person. Um, one of the things I wanted to let you know uh, that uh, he, of course, he was born um, quite some time ago in 1901, and so the language that he used is dated. Um, this is a short poem called I Dream a World, but I did want you to know that he uses um, man and mankind when he talks about um, people and humankind. Uh, and just know that that obviously doesn't represent the way that we would write and talk about things today, um, but is very much a part of the context and culture uh, that Langston Hughes uh, was a part of and grew up in. Um, but with that caveat, uh, you probably know this poem if you're familiar with his works. Um, if you're not, it's a really great introduction to, um, to him. So here are these words. Let this be uh, our liturgy today. Actually, as I do this, I'm gonna put this in the chat so that you can have a copy of it too. I dream a world where man, no other man will scorn, where love will bless the earth 
and peace its paths adorn. I dream a world where all will know sweet freedom's way, where greed no longer saps the soul, nor avarice blights our day. A world I dream where black or white, whatever race you be, will share the bounties of the earth and every man is free. Where wretchedness will hang its head and joy like a pearl attends the needs of all mankind. Of such I dream my world. Amen. Thanks, Bob. Um, well, now we'll be taking communion um, as we do uh, each week in our service. And uh, what we do is just simply use the elements we have around us. Um, so if you don't have those elements, please feel free and go grab them, uh, something to stand in for the bread, something to stand in for the cup. Um, uh, and we'll use those for our communion. Um, in, in continuation, as Bob mentioned, uh, we are in Black History Month and um, we want to make sure that we can highlight and uh, amplify voices, um, uh, especially from our Black brothers and sisters, um, and that, that focus us on um, uh, what there is still to be done, because there's a lot um, for us to understand and realize and fight for and, um, and establish justice um, and equity um, and um, peace. Um, and so in light of that, uh, I have a uh, prayer here um, that I will share before we take communion and uh, let us remember, right, as we do communion each week, part of why we do it is not because we often say that there's anything magical about the bread or there's anything magical about the wine or the grape juice or whatever it is, but by doing so, we actually embody um, the act of uh, letting Christ into our um, ourselves, being one with Christ, being one all at the same time with our own uh, neighbors that are partaking in communion. It is an act of remembrance and it's an act of solidarity. Um, and it's an act of rebellion um, in many ways in a world um, that is trying to and continues to try to try to um, snuff out justice um, and peace and love and mercy and ridicule such things as weak um, and ineffective. So um, we don't talk about it often, but the part of why we do this each week is that it really is a radical uh, thing to do. Um, so it's our little protest each Sunday. So um, with that, hopefully you've been able to uh, grab something if you need, uh, but let's pray together and then we'll take our communion together. Let's pray. We gather this morning, allow your spirit to fill our very being, most gracious and loving God. We remember the struggles of our people, of black people, of people of African descent, of your people, and thank you for your grace, your love, and your mercy. We thank you for leaders that you continue to place in high places and ordinary places. 
inspire each of us to work more faithfully for justice and dignity of life everywhere. Lord God, we remember the hurts of exclusion, of prejudice, but we know that you can raise the vision above all barriers and give us wisdom and courage to make this a better world. As you give us yourself in the bread of hope and the cup of mercy, show us how to give ourselves to those who are without hope and to those who cry for mercy. Lord God, rule over our spirit in this hour that we will go from this worship with the freedom of those who trust in you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And with that, as an act of unity of justice, um, of revolution, I invite you to take what it is you have for the bread and the cup on your own pace. Amen. Thanks, Max. So only one announcement this week, just like Bob said earlier, we're going to re return uh, weekly in person um, March 6th. Zoom options will be available, of course. Um, so yeah, hope to see you guys in person soon. Thanks, Angie. All right, prayer requests, words of Thanksgiving. Uh, does anybody have something they want to share today? You can go ahead and unmute or you can put it in the chat column. Well, some weeks there is not so much going on in that department and that's okay. Blessings. Oh, actually, let me, can I, sorry, I was typing in the channel. Oh, me. you're all good, man. Yeah, go ahead, Tom. Uh, yeah, I have uh, two cousins who are both uh, dealing with addiction, and so just prayers for them and for their dad, who's been going through a lot trying to keep him here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know something about that personally, too. Let's pray. Loving God, um, we lift up Tom's family members struggling with addiction, um, both those who are struggling and, and, and those... Uh, the family members trying to support them and help them. We pray for sobriety. We pray for healing. We pray for the support that they need in order to get sober and stay sober. We pray for all those involved in Jesus name, amen. All right. Well, with that, um, Max, I'll turn it over to you. Sure, thanks. Um, I will share a music video uh, this morning. Um, one of the best, uh, honestly, probably one of the best songs written, at least in the last hundred years or so. Um, but one of my favorites, especially as we remember um, our, our calling and Black History Month. Um, here's a little Sam Cook for you. I uh, hope you enjoy.
Max, I love Sam Cook. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, so today is part four in our series on church history, and today we are looking at the age, the age of mysticism. Um, this was both an intellectual and spiritual movement that spanned essentially from the 14th to the 16th century. But to be clear. There, there have always been mystics in the church. So it's not, it's not correct to say that there was just one age of mysticism. In fact, most church scholars would point to the fifth and sixth century as the official beginning of you know, Christian mysticism. Of course, I'm talking about the common era, CE or AD, fifth or sixth century. Um, was really 
the the official, I guess, scholars would say, uh, beginning of Christian mysticism. And this began with a theologian and philosopher that was very prominent during that time named Dionysus. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, Dionysus. But one could even, to be fair, one could even go further back than that into the Gnosticism of the first and second century church, as we talked about a few weeks ago. Gnosticism can be understood as having mystical and esoteric roots. Uh, but for our purposes today, we're going to start with Dionysus in the fifth century, who was a theologian and philosopher that taught, among other things, that God is better described and understood by negations rather than affirmations. What does that mean? Well, th this is called apophatic theology. There's a fancy seminary word term for you. Apophatic theology or negative theology. And it's really the root of Christian mysticism. Dionysus believed it's better to describe what God is not rather than what God is, because God is so far beyond human conception that any propositional truth claims about God, any, any so-called cataphatic claims, any positive claims, like those that we find uh, in the creeds, right? The, the Nicene Creed that we looked at the first week of this series, right? Such, such claims are by definition incomplete and incorrect because God is so far beyond human conception. So it's better to say what God is not in order to get at what God, you know, is, I guess you could put it like that. Uh, for, so for example, one should not say that God is triune, one in three or three in one, because words like Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Trinity, these are human words, right? I mean, we, we created these words, right? These, these are words found in our languages. And therefore, they're human ideas and categories of thought that could really never captivate or define who God is. Likewise, one should not say that God is a being. Because beinghood implies certain ontological understandings of, of existence and personhood that, again, are human constructs, human conceptions, uh, hu you know, ideas made up of one's language, culture, time, and place. Etc. God is not defined by such things, of course. Uh, therefore, according to Dionysus, all theological claims ultimately fail, and one needs to accept that. And when one does, divine silence, darkness, and unknowing will follow. And this uh, is the deepest way of communing with God, according to Dionysus, right? Christian mysticism is, is founded on these ideas of pure mystery and unknowing. In fact, the word mystical or mystic comes from the word mystery. A mystic is one who embraces mystery and unknowing. For those of you familiar with radical theology, this should sound familiar. Radical theology, the, the school of Christian thought that I find myself within, is very much rooted in early Christian mysticism and its focus on apophatic theology, aka negative theology. And, and embracing total unknowing and even non-being itself, right? I know that sounds maybe a little confusing, but hey, you know, that's, that's mysticism, at least one understanding of it. It probably won't surprise you that there's more than one understanding of mysticism, even within Christianity. Uh, let's look at some of those other understandings now. Mysticism in Christianity, like mysticism in other religions, is often about uh, experiencing oneness with the absolute or, or God. 
It's about shedding this, this dualist idea that one is somehow separate or distinct or independent from, from the one, from the divine. Uh, rather, one is actually deeply enmeshed or intertwined with the absolute, the divine, God, whatever you want to call it. Mysticism is, is often focused, what, what typifies mysticism is, is that it's often focused on this idea of interconnectedness, interconnectedness, the interconnectedness of all things. There's something usually pantheistic or panentheistic about it. To, to say it's pantheistic or, panentheist, or panentheistic is to say that it sees God in everything or everything in God. God is not so much a being, but the being of beings, uh, the being of everything, the, the essence of beinghood and reality itself. Mysticism also has a knack for transgressing against its parent religion, like Christianity, Islam, Judaism, whatever. It has a knack for challenging what is considered orthodoxy. And I think this is because our religions, as, as wonderful as they are, they are not the thing in and of themselves, but rather they, they point to the thing, right? The, the thing, the absolute, the, the source, the one God, you know, whatever you want to call it. That, that thing or, you know, the absolute cannot be domesticated or, or contained or defined by any one religion. And yet our religions are, in fact, the, the direct result of mystical experiences that human beings have been having since we evolved into sentient beings, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of years ago. I like how uh, David Stendhal Rast puts it, who is a modern day Benedictine monk who, who's now in his 90s. He says this, all the religions start from mysticism. There is no other way to start a religion. But I compare this to a volcano that gushes forth, and then the magma flows down the sides of the mountain and cools off. And when it reaches the bottom, it's just rocks. You ne you'd never guess that there was fire in it. So after a couple of hundred, hundred years or 200 years or more, what was once alive is dead rock. Doctrine be doctrines become doctrinaire. Morals become moralistic. Rituals become ritualistic. What do we do with it? We have to push through this crust and go to the fire that's within it, end quote. I love how, how Ras describes mysticism as the fire that burns within the heart of our religions and, and burns within the heart of humanity. This is why we find religion everywhere on earth, from the, you know, the grand cathedrals of, of Europe to the tiniest shaman hut in the most remotest parts of, of the world. This is why we find proto-religions, uh, proto-religious rituals being practiced hundreds of thousands of years ago in, in the burial rituals of our ancestors, even by our pre-human ancestors, right? Like Neanderthal. Religion is, is everywhere because the fire is everywhere. Maybe the fire is the astonishment of consciousness or this, this sense of awe and wonder for simply being aware, being here now and, and knowing how connected uh, we are to everything around us. I don't know. But I think that that's probably part of it. Consciousness itself. Consciousness itself strikes me uh, as a deeply mystical thing. The, the fact that we are made of stardust. We are therefore, you know, thinking, feeling, living stars. You know, if that's not mystical. <laughs> you know, if that, that, that doesn't seem mystical to you, I, I don't know what will. 
So that's a short definition of what mysticism is. Uh, and, and we've already looked at Dionysus as, as kind of the progenitor of Christian mysticism. But uh, many came along after him and stood on his shoulders, particularly uh, between the 14th and 16th centuries, this, this, this period during the late Middle Ages. Uh, I'm talking about people like Teresa of Avila, Catherine of Siena, Marguerite Perret, and, and Meister Eckhart, to name a few. And it's important to understand the, the social and political events that gave rise to the explosion of mysticism in the church uh, between the 14th and 16th century. There was two major causes for this explosion in mysticism, church corruption and the bubonic plague. The bubonic plague, or Black Death as it was called, took hold in Europe during the middle of the 14th century. And over, over approximately 30 years, about a third of Europe died. Um, that would be like 100 million Americans dying from COVID. Entire towns were wiped out. And this unprecedented and terrifying disease was interpreted by many, of course, back then as, you know, as a punishment from God uh, for, among other things, church corruption. Uh, avarice and greed dominated the, the, the medieval church at this time and, and dominated the papacy itself. Uh, there were actually three popes at once uh, because of internal power struggles within the Vatican. All, all of this led to a great distrust of the church and its leadership, and that combined with the plague really made people look elsewhere uh, and to unconventional sources uh, to meet their spiritual needs. So people began turning to mystics, and a mystic could be anybody. Right, though anybody claiming to have special spiritual insight, special revelation, a uh, special experience, uh, or special powers to heal the sick, and there was lots of folks like that. You know, it's interesting that mysticism always seems to thrive in times of great instability and social upheaval. When when trusted spiritual authorities and trusted institutions fail us, we often we often look elsewhere for answers and hope, and this has always been true. It was, it was true in the Middle Ages, and it's true now. You know, some say we're living even now during a, a, a new age of mysticism, uh, in part because of the social and political upheavals over the last few generations here in the United States in particular, right? The culture war and, and church corruption. A growing number of people today no longer trust the church for a variety of good reasons, right? But those who are leaving the church and leaving organized religion uh, we're, we're finding that they're, they're, they're not becoming less spiritual per se. They're just finding their sense of spiritual connection elsewhere. The same was true during the Middle Ages. And it's, and it's what gave rise to mystics like Teresa of Avila, Catherine of Siena, Marguerite Perret, <clears throat> and um, Meister Eckhart and, and others. It's interesting that many of the mystics back then were women. Mysticism has always been pretty egalitarian, the thinking being you know, anyone can be a vessel of God's spirit. Yeah. All three of these women, Teresa of Avila, Catherine of Siena, Marguerite Perret, you know, they all had you know, visions of Christ and experienced altered states of consciousness where they experienced what they described as a perfect union with, with God. And so they taught people that they too could commune with God directly and that one didn't need a church or, or a mass or, or a priest for this. This idea, of course, got them in a lot of trouble, some more than others. Marguerite Perret, in particular, thought that the church did not have a monopoly on God or his love. She believed that there was a big church and a little church, 
as she put it. Uh, the little church was the one with the creeds and the doctrines and the sacraments, the, the priests and the popes and the buildings and the budgets. All right? the, in other words, the little church was Christendom itself. The big church was the one made up of people from all tribes, nations, languages, genders, whatever, uh, all walks of life who practiced love and embodied the virtues of Christ, whether they were Christian or not. The big church for her transcended the little church, and that meant one could be a member of the big church and be included in God's family with, you know, while having nothing to do with the little, with, with the little church, you know, Christianity and Christendom. Well, this idea got her in a lot of trouble. In 1310, she was actually burned at the stake uh, after being convicted of heresy and, uh, for, you know, for, for these ideas um, and for others, because, you know, her focus was this on this idea of a God of love, pure love, without any religious trappings or, or the need for religion necessarily. She said things like, and this is a quote from her book, The Mirror of Simple Souls. She writes, I am God, says love, for love is God and God is love. And my soul is God by the condition of love. I am God by divine nature. And my soul is God by righteousness of love, end quote. That was pure heresy back then. And, and, I would, and for a lot of people, even now, a lot of evangelicals and, you know, the Orthodox would find that idea to be, you know, pure heresy even now. But she's just taking her cues. She was just taking her cues from First John, right, where it says God is love. Uh, etc. Meister Eckhart, the, the last mystic I want to look at this morning, um, said something similar. He said, the eye with which God, I'm sorry, the eye with which I see God is the same with which God sees me. My eye and God's eye is one eye and one sight and one knowledge and one love. You know, that's that sounds a lot like Marguerite Perret, right? And this is a a common theme in Christian mysticism, this, this negation of duality, this negation of separation between God and us, and this idea that we are God and God is, is us as we, as we live out, as we live out of a place of, of love. Another famous quote of Eckhart's was, so therefore let us pray to God that we may be rid of God. Let us pray to God that we may be rid of God. This is a classic apophatic or, or, or negative piece, piece of negative theology rooted in the tradition of Dionysus a thousand years prior. And by this, Eckhart uh, may have meant a few things. He may have meant, let us pray that we may be set free from the oppressive God of religion, this, this God of the Inquisition, this, this God who burns people like Marguerite Perret at the stake uh, for not having the correct theology or beliefs, you know, as if anybody ever could have the correct theology or beliefs. You can't, right? Eckhart would say, uh, may we be rid of this God that the theologians and the priests and the pastors think that we can apprehend with our mind. Let, may we be set free from this oppressive idea of God. He also seemed to mean that we should be rid of this God who allows us to escape our responsibilities uh, to each other. For Eckhart, that the God of Christianity is not a God that calls us out of the world and into heaven, but Christianity is about a God who, who calls us into the world as it is. For him, the, the deepest understanding of prayer is that God is praying to us, in fact. Not so much that we're praying to God, but that God is praying to us, that we might actually be his hands and feet in the world, uh, to, be the, his, to incarnate him in the world, 
has Jesus of Nazareth incarnated God? Uh, Eckhart seemed to believe that God does not exist in the world unless we incarnate him. This was his mysticism. It's about finding God in the midst of life itself, in the, in the quotidian, in the simple everyday ways that we live and love and care for each other. This, this was Eckhart's mysticism, and I would argue the mysticism of any true mystic. And it bears a strikingly, striking resemblance to that, to the mysticism of, of Teresa of Avila, Catherine of Siena, Marguerite, and, and many others. And like so many of them, Eckhart ran afoul of the authorities and was convicted of heresy. Uh, but before they could execute him, he died in custody. It's a, it's a tragedy that that's the way it often works out. So that's the history, uh, briefly, uh, that, that's the history and legacy of, of mysticism in the church. Um, I could go on, but I'd, I'd love to hear now any questions or comments or insights you might have. Uh, but I'm also interested in hearing today what, what aspects of mysticism, you know, Christian, mis Christian mysticism or mysticism in general, <laughs> uh, what aspects of it resonate with you? Anybody? One of the other things I find interesting, maybe this will spark a thought um, about the history of mystics in the church is that, you know, the, the medieval church mystics were really doing deconstruction before, you know, deconstruction was a thing. We think deconstructive Christianity is a relatively, you know, recent invention, right? And a byproduct of postmodernism, secularism, Marxism, right? Or an ever in encroaching scientific worldview. But in reality, mysticism has always been deconstructive of religion. I hope you heard that today in, in my um, short uh, explanation of it. Um, mysticism has always been deconstructive of religion and its claims to you know, direct knowledge of God. Uh, it's always been deconstructive of religion's arrogance and its false piety. Um, you know, mysticism has always been deconstructive uh, in that way. And so I, I'm saying that in a sense, you know, we so-called progressive Christians today, we're kind of, the, in my opinion, the true heirs of the, of, of this kind of mystical heritage that came out of the, the middle age or the medieval church. But anyway, uh, I don't know if that sparks any thoughts or comments or questions, but, um, that's the other thing I wanted to mention. I guess what kind of stands out to me is there's no hierarchy, no yeah. order that you have to go through to get to God. I remember when I was going to this conservative church in San Francisco and we used to go out every other Sunday and, you know, preach on the corner. And there are some Catholic people standing in line and we were talking about going directly to God. And she was like, how can you do that? How can you go directly to God? You have to go through this, this, and this, and this. Right. That just sort of sparked that memory that, you know, there's no priest or pastor or something that you have to go through but you can go directly to god yourself straight to the source because when yep. there's hierarchy there's power then you know power corrupts absolute power <laughs> yeah know? yeah it, it's, it's, get... it's yeah it's easy to understand how the church wanted or why the church wanted you know people to believe they needed the, the priests and the popes and the 
and the sacraments and all of that. Uh, and it's not to say that, you know, that, that rituals and, and um, religious practices and spiritual practices aren't ways that we can, you know, make that connection. Absolutely, we can. But this idea that that's the only way you have to come to me, right? You have to come to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're the one who controls the valves and the pipes of heaven that, you know, the grace flows through. Right? We're heaven's plumbers mm-hmm. and engineers, so to speak, us priests and pastors. Yeah, obviously, that's that's a power play. Uh, meant to fill the pews and fill the coffers, right? Um, yeah. And it's and and people were like Marguerite Pratt, uh, uh burned at the stake for saying otherwise, um, threatening the business model, right? I do find it yeah. interesting. I didn't know that you did street preaching, Randy. Uh, yeah. I didn't know that you. Yeah. There was a time that you engaged in, you know. Um, Years I, ago, you have yeah. to live and see, I, we we used to do door to door evangelism in my church we did that with a few sundays after mm-hmm. church they sent this out to the neighborhood that was fun anyway that's a whole yeah. other matter um <laughs> thanks for your thanks for, thanks for your comment other other thoughts today about mysticism the heritage of it that we've inherited hey aaron hey nathan uh yeah, I think it also allows the mysticism, it pr- provides a way to connect with other faiths and still practice your own faith. Um, wow. I think it's very generous in a sense of like, you can learn from others, you know, um, a lot of Sufis will read St. Teresa of Avila and, and say, that's just, that's so similar. Some of what she describes is very similar to some of the practices in Sufism or or Zen Buddhism and some of the mystical parts, but yet you're still practicing your own tradition, your own faith. So I, I feel like that it is a bridge to to just more empathy, I think, and more more understanding. And you can continue to learn instead of saying they're the other. You can actually learn from the practices of other and apply it to your own practice. So I, I think it's it's really welcoming as a, as far as yeah. And you're right, Nathan, we do find this commonality, uh, this kind of mystical commonality, uh, it's, it's perennial. It, it's found in, in so many uh, different uh, cultures and religions. I'm, I'm curious, why do you think that is? I have my own theories. Do you, do you have a, you know, you're a student of religion. You're, you're a former pastor. You should know. You should know. <laughs> I'm curious if you have any thoughts about why you think that's just a common thing found throughout time and place. Well, I think I, I, you know, just off the top of my head without like spending lots of time thinking about it. I think when we, when we let loose of the structures and the dogmas and the beliefs, like the heart, like this is what we believe and allow um, the love of God to shine through and in the mystery of it, then you, then you start to see the commonality of what the pursuit is. It is about a higher state of consciousness rooted in your faith, right. And in, in your approach and, and, and a way of seeing the world that is universal rather than exclusionary or just specific to one worldview yeah. being the Western, you know, American Christian worldview or some other worldview. It's why Merton, you know, ended up in, in Thailand. <laughs> like he was a, he was a monk in like isolation and he, his life ended in Thailand meeting with the Dalai Lama and Zen Buddhists and talking like understand because he saw in them a similarity to his own Christian mysticism that he was writing about that he had been written writing about for decades 
and then started to understand him, you know, like Thich Nhat Hanh, who just recently passed, um, wrote very fondly of Thomas Merton, like they were brothers, like they found each other and like, uh, it's really quite beautiful because his path to that is kind of the path we're on in a sense of like yeah. the general, you just, your heart just keeps opening to bigger and bigger things and you start to see that yeah. there's a lot of similarities. So. And David Stendhal Rass, the Benedictine monk that's still with us, I think he's 95. He's very much in that Merton school of thought as well. Yeah. And they're, and they, and I mean, they're Catholics. I and they're mean, Catholic. They're still you know, Catholic. It's not, it's not, that's still Catholic. The, it's not an abandoning of no it is it is um an opening to like yeah. more of it it's more realized not yeah. a not a it's so in a sense it's deconstruction but in a sense it's also it's construction it's just yes. bringing in a lot more yeah uh, like points that, like this other practices another way of seeing and, and doing that it's actually con more construction of your faith than deconstruction yeah. of your faith in that sense isn't there something more powerful, powerful about doing that from within an existing ancient tradition rather than abandoning all, all traditions and just, you know, going into, which is fine too, but, and just go into kind of like just a, a general mysticism, you know, there's just, there's something very powerful about staying within a tradition and, and expanding out and spanning out of that, like that. And in some ways, um, you know, I, I just think that's, that's that's more interesting quite often but anyway yeah thank you nathan other other thoughts anybody want to share a mystical experience they've had <laughs> um i oh, see I, uh, go ahead tom oh there's a uh, what did you see I, 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 right as you unmuted i said does anybody want to share a mystical oh. experience <laughs> Okay, I didn't know if someone else was gonna. gonna no, speak. you're good. Go ahead, man. Go ahead. Yeah, I just I'm. I always hold back a little bit for mysticism, just because I'm always a little bit like. There's something that kind of disturbs me a little bit about maybe some of what in the tradition is kind of self-harming, mm. and like uh, Saint Francis or somebody who's definitely very mystical, but it sort of comes at the cost of their treatment of their body. Um, and then, yeah, I'm wondering if there are any, as you're, can, can as you go on about that, can you explain that a little better? Uh, I'm not, yeah, so, how Francis so just uh, living a life of poverty, going on long fasts, uh, you oh, know, yeah. intentionally, sleeping in the cold or just doing things that were going to be injurious or harmful to his body or other things in different monastic movements where asceticism asceticism yeah yeah, yeah the, the aesthetic part of it um and then in modern days when somebody describes himself as a mystic i'm always like uh, it's kind of a i feel like it's a very arrogant thing to do sometimes <laughs> like sure. i'm so mystical <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering like is there anything that as because you've almost certainly are more much more familiar with this world than I am from your vantage point are there any warning signs troubling points any themes or things that you found is maybe like the the other side of the coin on mysticism yeah yeah that's a good point that's a really good question um you know it's what's happened with Buddhism in the west specifically it's kind of become like the zero level 
like we've treated it and others Westerners have kind of treated Buddhism, this very unique and complex uh, and non-American, <laughs> uh, non-Western religion. Americans have appropriated it uh, and turned it into kind of like the zero level of all religion, right? Uh, and in that sense, kind of reduced it down to like this mysticism in general. Um, there is some danger in the kind of, there, there, is a, there is an approach, I think, out there that, you know, uh, of that, of that kind of cultural appreciation that takes place sometimes in mystical streams of thought. I don't, I don't see, you know, a real downside to, to mysticism, but you're right in pointing out that church mystics like St. Francis and some others engaged in self-harm uh, through, through their, you know, uh, through, through their, under, I guess, mystical understandings and mystical practices. Um, there, there can be something, like any kind of religious or spiritual practice, it can become something unhealthy. There can be a level of kind of uh, idolatrous or a fundamentalist approach to it, um, you know, like anything else, right, um, involving religion or, or spirituality. So, yeah, Tom, you're absolutely right in, in pointing out some of those uh, problems in, in the way that mysticism is... Um, approach approach today uh somewhat and again it can kind of mean anything and nothing too you're right it can kind of like be this general i'm a mystic and what does that mean i have no idea you know what i mean um i tried to you know i'm trying to you know uh, describe mysticism today specifically in the context of church history uh and within christianity and i think that helps because otherwise we it can be sort of this amorphous sort of general term for just you know feeling feeling certain, you know, um, I don't even know how to describe it, just just feeling spiritual, I guess. Um, I'm not trying to, you know, uh, speak negatively about that, but I, but, I, I, but I think that that can be sort of what's meant sometimes. And so that's not um, uh, maybe always clear, I guess is what I'm saying. But you're right in pointing out there's some unhealthy aspects, perhaps. Yeah. I don't know, does that answer your question? Is address it? Yeah. Uh, other good stuff. Other thoughts today. Anybody want to share a mystical experience? I've had a few. I've mentioned them before. I don't need to just go back into it. Aaron, would you consider like the whole experience of speaking in tongues and unknown language as a mystical experience? Sure, it can be. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the the. The other general term for it is, guess I'm going to mess this up, glossalia or, gl gl did I get that right? Everyone's like, oh, good. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know. My, my, I, I'm, <laughs> the irony of um, mispronouncing the proper term for speaking in tongues. Um, yeah, mm. I, I, uh, that is actually an experience not just found in Christianity, um, but in, in a lot of ancient mystery religions uh, that Christianity borrowed from. Um, this idea of ecstatic speech, it's also sometimes called ecstatic speech. Uh, ecstatic utterances. You find that even in, in meditative and transcendental meditation, this idea of mantra, of, um, you know, the, it, all that stuff um, can, can be a positive experience. I don't want to denigrate any of that. In fact, perhaps anytime we speak theologically, anytime we speak about God, anytime we try to speak about the ineffable, right, that which transcends language and conception, uh, which is what mysticism is about. Anytime we give words and utterance to those things, are we not speaking in a kind of tongues? Are, are we not speaking a kind of spiritual language? Um, you know, that, uh, you know, we hope others can interpret, right? And have the gift of interpretation. Perhaps that's what 
religion and spiritual language, you know, all God, all God talk is symbolic speech. Let's, let's acknowledge that. All God talk is symbolic speech, symbolic for that which we cannot speak of, but also symbolic of that which we cannot stop speaking of as human beings. So, yeah, I think, I think I, I love that mystical aspect of tongues. I'm, I speak in tongues every Sunday when I, anytime I'm talking about God, I'm speaking in tongues. Um, you know, I don't know. That's kind of how I look at it. I'm still a Pentecostal at heart, maybe. Maybe that's the, <laughs> maybe that's the point. I, I haven't distanced myself really that much from Pentecostalism. I've just taken my mysticism a little more seriously and my apophatic theology from Dionysus a little more seriously, which some would say is a little too close to atheism. But that's mysticism, you know? That's Christian mysticism. I'll be very clear, for, you know, that's Christian mysticism. <clears throat> that experience, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I, I have, you know, I'm still deeply emotionally attached to uh, my faith. I, I, I have emotional experiences with my faith, especially when I'm out on my, you know, I'm outside and I'm on my runs and I'm listening to music. And I, I find myself having emotional, spiritual experiences during those times. Um, you know, for me, that's deeply rewarding still. Um, so, yeah, I, I think mm. I think we can foster that. And I think we should. Anyway, so that's my thing. Mm. Oh, Thanks. thank you, Max. You you spelled out the proper term, glossolalia. Yeah, Oh, there you go. Fun because you have to go glossolalia, and it's almost like <laughs> see my bow tie, tie my bow tie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I bought a Chevy. I, I bought a Chevy. Should have bought a Kia. There's all those old jokes. <laughs> we, Pente we Pentecostals have all the great jokes <laughs> about tongue language. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. I wonder. Um. I know in Christianity, they say it comes from the Holy Ghost, but how do other traditions say it, like speaking in tongues comes from what the source is? Yeah, yeah, I think it's similar. I, I think there's this idea in other religions of being overcome by the spirit, you know, whatever, mm. you know, being overcome by something, some spirit, right? Of being possessed by a, a spirit, be it, you know, divine or not. There's, there's those ideas in other religions. Yeah, those aren't just mm. Christian ideas or Jewish ideas. Everything is a remix. You know, all these religious, yeah. they're, all, they're all remixed. Nothing know? new under the sun. There's nothing new under, yeah. <laughs> but that's beautiful too. That, that can be, we can affirm that. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Thanks. That's a good, that's a great question. Thanks. No problem. Any other uh, thoughts, remarks, questions? Okie doke. Well, we'll end a little bit early today. Thanks for being here, everybody. Um, we'll be back here on the Zoom channel next week. And remember, March 6th, we are going to be returning to our in-person services in our building. So thanks for being here, everybody. We're dismissed. Look forward to it. Thanks. Yeah. Glad. I'm glad you can be there, Randy. Thanks. Um, Have a good one. All right. See you. See you later, man. If you want to stay out.